today we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at the question of why does God allow things to happen? Or why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't He step in and do something? And so times where we experience as individuals hardships in life or things that happen uh, in our world. Uh, where we, It causes us and other people to ask the question, why doesn't God do something? Today we're going to discover that in the book of 2 Peter. So I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. So open up your Bible, if you have it today, to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And what we're going to discover is, we're going to discover God's answer for this question. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't He do something during times uh, in our life? during times uh, in the world, events that are going on around us, why doesn't he step in and do something? And so, starting in verse 1, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. I love the way that, that Peter frames this conversation, because this is something that, this is a message that he's giving to his church, to the church in the New Testament. This is a letter that many other churches up to our time will be reading. But his message in both of his epistles, both of his letters, are for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wants to, he wants to teach us, and God is trying to teach us through this in a very interesting way. He actually addresses some of the doubts that skeptics, or I think in this passage, really the Bible is addressing and Peter is addressing accusers, people that are accusing God of something. But he uses that type of apologetic message to actually encourage and to equip the church and to give us a way to think about that question. Why doesn't God step in and do something? The first thing that we notice uh, in this passage, in the just the first part, if you look in your Bible there, he says in verse 1 something very important, I believe. He says that he wants to stir up our sincere minds, by way of reminder. Peter is not just appealing to our feelings or appealing to our heart. He's appealing to the minds 
of believers. This is really important. And then he says in verse 2, I'm appealing to your mind so that you would remember something. That you would remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. He's saying, I'm going to appeal to your mind as believers. I want you to think critically about this. I want you to think logically about this. I want to engage your mind and cause you to think back on the things that the Lord said, on the things that are in the Old Testament that were spoken by the prophets. But I want to engage your mind. This is really important. And, And Sometimes when we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of the Apostle Paul as he's the apologist. You know, he's the guy who's he's going to Athens and he's debating with the uh, with the with the uh, the Epicureans and 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 the philosophers, and he's that guy who really speaks in philosophical language. But here we have Peter, not for the first time, because he also is the one who kind of makes famous that whole idea of apologetics, of doing apologetics, of giving a reason or a defense for uh, your faith. And here we have him again in chapter 3, appealing to the minds of believers. This is important, I think, in our time. Uh, J.P. Moreland wrote a book called Loving the Lord Your God with All of Your Mind. And uh, he, he really hits on something that I think is really important for us as believers today. That we need to think critically about our faith. And we need to be ready to give an account, to give a defense for our faith. Uh, but, but something has happened in the evangelical world today. Something has happened in our culture. I want to read something that J.P. Moreland said from his book, Loving the Lord Your God with All of Your Mind. He says this, Something very serious has happened in our culture because the centers of powers and authority have been dominated by secular voices for a long time now. And what that's done is create a context where ethical and religious claims are no longer taken cognitively. We no longer take moral and theological assertions to be either true or false. Or if they are taken as true or false, we do not take them as the kind of claims that anyone could know one way or the other. And so they devalue to the level of personal feeling and opinion. Uh, Moreland goes on in his book, if, if you've never heard of it, it's a great book to have. It really talks about how uh, Christians today should should really engage in robust dialogue with, with the people like Peter's talking about who ask these questions. Where are the signs of his coming? Why has he not fulfilled the promise to come again? Um, and by engaging with those critical questions in a, in a critical way, um, we can go to the Word of God and we can use our minds to engage uh, those skeptics and those ones who are raising questions. In J.P. Moreland's book, Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind, he talks about this. I would encourage you to get that book if you don't already have it. But the way that Peter frames this this chapter is he says he he already has planned, I believe, to talk to the church about this, this truth concerning Christ's coming. But he does so in a way to engage their minds and 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 reveal to them this is what is going to happen. Mockers are going to come as he says later on, no first, verse 3, mockers will come in the last days with their mockings following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Um, when, he, when he says to us, I'm going to engage your minds. I want to remind you of what God said has said in his word and the message that you've received. He prepares them for what's coming. There are people who are going to come very much like the serpent did in Genesis 
And they're going to take God's word, his promise. They're going to take his commandment and his promise, and, and they're going to twist it. They're going to, they're going to shine, uh, uh, cast some doubt upon it and say, did God really say this? Is his promise really reliable? Is his word really trustworthy? But notice what he says, first of all, about them. He says a couple of things about these accusers. He says, first of all, he gives us their identity, who they are. He calls them mockers. He calls them mockers. They're, they're going to verbally mock uh, your beliefs. They're going to say with their mouths, they're going to uh, give information to you, casting doubt upon the promise that you've believed. Mockers are going to come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. So he tells us who they are, and then he tells us what they're going to do. He tells us about their identity, and then he says, this is where they belong. Like, this is what they've clung to. This is the core of their identity. They're not simply uh, people who are unbiased. They're just kind of sitting on the fence. They're really not sure if they're going to believe in God or not. You know, they're trying to figure all this out. Sometimes we tend to think of people that way. But he says, these people are going to come. They are mockers. They're going to come with their mocking. And then he says this about their identity. He says that they are following after their own lust. He says they're followers. Sometimes Christians are seen as the only people who are actually following uh, any set of actual beliefs or a person. We're followers of Jesus Christ. Peter says about the mockers who are accusing God of not fulfilling uh, his word, of Jesus of not fulfilling his promise, uh, and, and, and Christianity being a false religion. Peter says, look, these people are followers too. They follow something. They're not on the fence when it comes to religion or discipleship. They follow their own lusts. So they are not without a Lord. They're just with a different Lord. They are a Lord unto themselves. They're following their own lusts, he says in verse 3. And this is what they're saying, he says in verse 4. They're asking, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise? Why hasn't God done something? Where is God in all of this? When is, he going, when is Jesus going to return? They ask this question, where is the promise of his coming? Now, they're referring to the words of Jesus that the apostles uh, told the disciples and disciples when they were planting churches would tell everybody, Jesus is coming again. As a matter of fact, Paul says that, uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, I deliver to you that which I also received. And then he shares the gospel with them. He tells them what it is. And part of that is that Jesus is going to return. He didn't just die on the cross, buried, and rose again. He's going to return again. And as a matter of fact, John says that in John 14, 3. I want to take you there for just a moment. If you'll turn in your Bible there and we'll have the words on the screen. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, In my Father's house, this is in John 14, 2, are many dwelling places. If it were not so... I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. Jesus says he's going to return again and that we're going to be with him in heaven forever. And so 
they're calling into question that promise that Jesus gave to his church, to us. And they're saying, where is the sign of his coming? Why has he not fulfilled his promise? So the first thing that Peter is focusing on and wants us to know is he wants us to know that there are going to be people who are going to come constantly. And you have to remember, this is in first century AD. This has been happening for centuries. The people have come and said, where's the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? Now listen to how Peter shifts gears. Because he goes from talking about the doubters and addressing their doubts in a critical, logical way to shifting gears to encouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 5. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And then he goes on in verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And then he says, but what's going to happen later on is the present heavens and earth by God's word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So what he points out about their questioning in verse 4 and their accusations against God in verse 4 that he's not going to fulfill his promise, that this is all just a big hoax, just a big joke. He says that they, they say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it is, as it was from the very beginning. They say, look, Jesus is not going to fulfill his promise. There are no signs of him fulfilling his promise. Everything has continued exactly the way that it always has from the very beginning. Nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. Why would we expect anything else to change? Peter says, that's not true. That's not true at all. He says, look at the very beginning. The very beginning of time. God spoke all that we see out of nothing. He gives these major uh, cataclysmic events that have happened throughout history that changed everything. And we can look at nature and see We can observe just through natural science the cataclysmic events that have happened throughout history. One of those, he says, is the beginning of all this, how all of this came into being. And scientists have looked at the universe and discovered that the universe is expanding at a certain rate, and it continues to expand, which reveals there was a point of of origination, that there was, an, there was a cause, there was a first cause. We call him God. Anselm called him that than which nothing greater can be conceived. The uh, unmoved mover. Peter says, look, let's think about this logically. If you want to talk about God that way, think about this logically. Many things have changed when we look at the beginning of everything. And then he talks in verse 6, The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water and with water. When you go back to the story of Noah, wow, did civilization not change dramatically at that point? Sin had increased so much that God decided he was going to, it was too much. He had to judge humanity, but he saved a small group in his grace and his mercy. Noah, a man who walked with God, a man who was blameless God saved him and his family. He provided a way. But the rest of the earth was completely destroyed. If that's not a sign, if that's not God's judgment and God's involvement, I don't know what is. 
But then Peter says, but there's going to be another time like that. There's going to be another time where God does something cataclysmic, and it's not here yet, but it will be, and it's coming soon. So the first thing that he encourages us as Christians, when we think about this accusation that God is slow about his promise and that nothing has changed, Peter wants to encourage us by answering the skeptic and says this, God has been working. He has been working. Look at the things that God has done in your life and let that encourage you to know that God is working. Go to his word and and look at these places like Peter is pointing out, these major cataclysmic events, and let it encourage you that God has been working throughout history, that he's not asleep. But a day is coming, a day is coming, very cataclysmic day that we need to be ready for. And so he moves on and he says um, in verse 8, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Peter says here, God's not slow. First of all, the way that we count slowness, <laughs> it's crazy. He says in verse 8, he says, this is something that, this is a fact that you don't, that you, may, you need to make sure and notice this, okay? Don't let this escape your notice. If we're talking about looking at things logically, if we're talking about just empirical things as the way that these, these accusers, uh, would approach this. They would say, look around, you know, look around at the evidence. Jesus is not fulfilling his promise. Peter says, well, don't let this escape your notice either, that God's not like us uh, necessarily. And this is what makes him God and what makes us not God is our conception of time. Uh, with God, um, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. I don't know about you, but you know, being indoors for the last month and being sheltering in place and stuff has made me really impatient about many things. And I think, oh, it's been so long since I've done this or done this or been able to, to do these things. And has it really been that long? I mean, when I think of, when I read history and I think of other times where this has happened in human history and people weren't able to do really hardly any of the things that we normally do today on a regular basis. Uh, it helps me not feel like I've been deprived of something. But sometimes we just lose focus. We, we, we lose uh, a sense of understanding that the way God works is a lot different than the way that we operate. And our timetable is not his timetable. And if we really understand that, that God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, that he is holy, and that he is completely different from us. It shouldn't be a hard thing for us to understand. His timing's different. And he looks at history as, as, a, as an, an everlasting now all the time. He sees it all. So a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. And so Peter uses this to encourage us as a church and as believers uh, to know that, that God's timing's perfect. God's timing is perfect, and we should 
we should embrace that. So number one, he, he encourages the church that God has been working, first of all, in answering the skeptic and the accuser. And then secondly, he answers the question of God's timing. He says, listen, God's not slow. He's patient. He's not slow. He's patient. He doesn't wish for any to perish. You know, God's, God's unchangeableness, his immutability is good. In the Old Testament, he says to his children Israel, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. See, whenever we want God to, to jump in and change things, whenever we, we want God to step in and do something about it, what we fail to understand is that God has been working, and the reason that he's not jumping in and doing something cataclysmic right now that would bring about that change is not because he's asleep. It's because he's merciful and he's loving. And this is something that the accusers and the skeptics don't understand. They're a Lord to themselves. They're not following God. They're not listening to God's voice in his word. So their reasoning is, is based upon their own capabilities. They're lovers of themselves. They follow their own lusts. And so they want everything here and now, and I want an answer. They're not willing to wait, and they're not willing to, to go to God's Word and, and learn about who God is and who His character is. But we as believers, Peter says, you need to know these things. You need to be encouraged about these things. You need to be equipped. And so the third thing that we see and final thing is this, that Christ will fulfill His promise. He will, even if it's not on our timetable. He will fulfill, fulfill His promise. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter says, listen, that day's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Why has it not happened yet? Because it's not going to be like any ordinary day. It's not going to be simply a day when all of the things that we think are bad in the world, where all the things in my life that I feel that are uncomfortable to me and that I don't like will be made well, restored. Every tear will be wiped away. And these things are all true. These things are all true and that we should look forward to when that time comes, when Jesus comes again, when we go to be in the presence of God forever. These things are true, but, but Peter says, listen, the reason that this day has not occurred yet is because of God's mercy, because on that day, it, he's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come in such a way that every knee will be forced to bow at his glory. When he comes again, he's going to make all things new. He's going to judge sin, and everything is going to be as he says, purified, burned with an intense heat. It is not a day that the non-believer, that the one who is a Lord to himself, wants to come. Even though they say, we want him to come again. If Where's the sign of his coming? He should be coming. Disease is rampant. Crime is rampant. Look at humanity, how, how desperate we are. This day needs to come, and it needs to come now. These people who are accusing God, they don't want that day to come. And the reason that God 
has not allowed that day to come yet, the Bible tells us is because he is patient. He's loving. It's not that he's going back on a promise. It's not that he's changing his mind. He doesn't change, his word says. But it's because he's patient. He has fixed a day. Nobody knows the day. We can't change the day. You know, just just earlier this week, we got the news that there was going to be a meteor shower in the east part of the sky. And everyone was saying, okay, this is you need to you need to go outside and look towards the east from about 10:30 to midnight, and you'll get to see a meteor shower. Well, we went out there for a while, but the mosquitoes have gotten so bad we only lasted about 20 minutes and we didn't see anything. But it was nice to know we have a window, you know, we can go out anytime between 10:30 and midnight and we can maybe see a meteor shower. That that'd be that'd be kind of nice. No, God doesn't give us a window. He doesn't give us a time frame. He doesn't say sometime between 2020 and 2021, Jesus is going to return. He doesn't give us a week. He doesn't give us a day or an hour. The Bible says no one knows the day. So Peter is using these accusations from non-believers who are lords unto themselves, who follow their own lusts and who are going to come with mocking. He uses their accusations to encourage the church and to drive home these truths. First of all, that God has been working. So look back and glorify Him and worship Him for the ways He's been working. Look at the ways He's moved. Look at the ways that He's saved. Look at the things that He's done in your life and throughout history that show His grace and mercy. Number two, God is not slow, but He's patient. He's patient. And if He's patient, and the reason for His patience is that He's not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, what should we be doing as a church? What should you be doing? How should you be living your life every day, every time the sun comes up? How should you be living your life? How should I be living my life as believers? When God gives us one more day, one more moment because of His love and kindness and His patience, how are we living that day? How are we living that moment? Knowing that that's the reason why He's not doing something about it. Stepping in and cataclysmically changing everything. How should that shape the way that we live our lives? And the final thing that he says as an encouragement is that Christ will fulfill his promise. I hope that encourages you if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, I hope that that today's message and God's word in 2 Peter 3 convicts you. Convicts you that You cannot continue to live your life as your own Lord and Master. Trying to figure out why, why, you know, who God is and and why God works the way that He does, that will never change until you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Faith has to come first. You have to see a picture of Jesus on the cross and let that break your heart over your own sin and cry out to Him as Lord and Savior. And then after after He creates in you a new heart and you're born again, then start to ask him, Lord, will you give me wisdom? Will you show me, give me discernment so I can understand these things? But until you surrender your heart to him, you'll never understand. You'll never come to an understanding. It's only through the cross of Christ and accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior that you will be able to understand and be comforted by the gospel, all parts of the gospel, that Jesus died for you, 
that he rose again, that he's in heaven with the Father right now, interceding for all those who believe and that he's coming again. I hope that these words are convicting to you today as they are to me, and I hope that they encourage you if you're a believer. As you continue to move forward in your faith, consider God's word today. We love you. See you guys later.